Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Why some people play it safe more than others? How can you distinguish when a playing it safe move is effective or ineffective? When we are dealing with worries, anxieties, fears, we all play it safe. You might be playing it safe if you get stuck thinking doom and gloomy scenarios, you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake, You feel like an imposter despite all your accomplishments. You doubt your competency. You may put off an activity when it's too overwhelming, but beat yourself up because you're not getting it done. You may be overly careful about what you're saying, how you're saying it, and what you're doing so you don't make mistakes. We all play it safe. That's natural and no human being walks in life without playing it safe. If you want to understand more how you're playing it safe and how you may be getting stuck in your head, you can go to the website www.thisisdrz.com and complete the playing it safe questionnaire. So you can check your playing it safe profile and really identify those thinking patterns or those overthinking patterns or behaviors that keep you stuck. Now, in this episode, I chat with Dr. Jonathan Kaplan. Jonathan is a psychologist. He is the director of the Soho CBT Center in New York, and he is the author of one of my favorite, favorite books, Urban Mindfulness. In this conversation, we chat about one of Jonathan's favorite mindfulness exercises, why planet safe behaviors are natural, and we dive in particular into two skills to distinguish effective planet safe moves from ineffective ones. We also touch base about how to handle uncertainty and how to handle ruling thoughts about thinking. These ruling thoughts about thinking are also known as metacognitions. Now, in the middle of the conversation, you will hear me practicing how to say one of my favorite words in English, and you will also hear one of Jonathan's favorite jokes related to anxiety and playing it safe. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I wish you a lovely week. I'm a big fan of your book, The Urban Mindfulness. It's such a cool packet book, and I absolutely Mm. love, love, love the concept. 
Um, I'm wondering maybe we can start there. One of the struggles I had is that many clients live a very fast life and don't have too much time to be sitting in a meditation retreat for five days. Although I know it will be ideal. It will be beautiful that they have that building their schedules. But given the time that we're living, it's quite unlikely. So the idea of introducing mindfulness as a micro skill that the person practice in their day-to-day lives is super brilliant. Well, Patricia, thank you so much. And I really appreciate uh, how much you like the book and my work. And the, the idea for urban mindfulness initially came from my own experience of moving to New York City mm-hmm. from uh, rural Ohio. And uh, when I was there, I had a, a very balanced sort of work life and uh, was doing a lot of things to maintain my own well-being. And then when I moved here to New York, uh, I was confronted with all of the stress, the busier pace, and, and found a lot of the, the peace that I had cultivated in Ohio was, was eroding here in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, my own experience was also um, being mirrored in the experience of the folks that I was meeting with, my patients, clients, and mm-hmm. and you know, as you suggested, there's um, you know the opportunity for people to come to a full stop, right? Whether it's for a meditation retreat or even sort of a longer meditation, um, really wasn't possible or. Um, likable mm-hmm. for many people here. <laughs> I know. So, so the, the challenge or invitation was how can we practice mindfulness in a way that, that uh, adapts to, to living in a way that's really busy and fast paced and uh, in an environment where we're surrounded by overwhelming sensory stimuli, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I relate a lot to what you are saying. Um, Sometimes my clients, they thought that mindfulness was this hippie idea or it's like flowers and butterflies. So I think with your book, you really introduce the idea that mindfulness, it's not that. It's actually a moment that we can pause and watch our mind and watch what is around us. In the book, you have a bunch of exercises that people can practice. What are your favorite ones, the ones that you are currently practicing this week? Well, I think, I think one of my favorite ones is um, opening up to the, the people who are around us in a way that invites, uh, even if it's more internal, invites a felt sense of connection mm-hmm. and even um, kindness, love and goodwill. So, for example, in in the book, um, I'll talk about uh, practicing um, the extension of warm wishes or blessings Mm -hmm. to people that we see around us, right? And this is something that I'll often practice personally, and I'll uh, advise my my patients and clients to do on the subway. Mm -hmm. So we're in an environment, we're surrounded by other people. Right. And our, our typical response is to is to check out. Right. Mm-hmm. Let me push the earphones in deeper. Let me you know, get more absorbed in my phone. Right. And really trying to shut everything out. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and one of the themes of the book is actually how about we do the opposite? Mm-hmm. How about instead of shutting it out, we, we invite it in. Right. And so 
in this context, there's an opportunity for us to really see who's around us. Mm -hmm. And in our own minds, we can send them a wish or a blessing, right? Mm -hmm. May you have a great day, right? I hope you win the lottery today, right? I hope you get a promotion, right? And, and really offering whatever heartfelt wishes we might have for their own well-being, mm -hmm. right? And, and the nice, nice aspect of that is that we can feel more connected to the people around us. Um, and it also can fill our own hearts with those good feelings as we extend the kindness and love towards others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love the idea and certainly it has been very refreshing to practice it. One of the things that you and I were very clear and I think a lot of people will relate to us is to the fact that our mind never gets quiet. Our mind yep. goes on and on, blah, 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 yap, yap, yap. So let's say that I am in the street and I want to practice wishing warm wishes to the person walking next by me. But my yes. mind keeps going on. My mind is ruminating about work. My mind is ruminating about the podcast. What would you coach me in those moments? What do I do to manage all the background noise that my mind is coming up with? Mm. Yeah, yeah, and that, that sort of experience is something that all of us have, right? The mind is yeah. essentially always on, right? Mm -hmm. We're always thinking, right? And, right? and we can compare it perhaps to like a, a radio mm -hmm. or a Spotify playlist that's just always going on, right. right? And, you know, depending on, on our circumstances, mm -hmm. you know, what, what we're thinking can be loud or it mm -hmm. can be soft, Mm -hmm. it's rarely off <laughs> that's right I, I don't think my mind is ever off to be honest I don't think so, I think so. it doesn't it doesn't work that way right? that's right <laughs> and so uh, what we need to do is essentially recognize that reality mm -hmm. that um that the mind is going to be on we're going to be thinking things mm -hmm. right and there's an opportunity for us to integrate some other practices, mm -hmm. right? So it might mean that I am thinking about my work, right? And I'm also checking in with my posture mm -hmm. when I come to a, a stoplight or a don't walk sign, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, it might be that, that I'm thinking about my family um, and, you know, in between, I notice somebody and I might think about what we have in common. Mm -hmm. Right. And so so it might be initially a little bit of back and forth. That's right. right? Um, where I have the usual thinking, I have the usual playlist, I have the usual radio station playing, and I'm also trying to do things on top of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And we can imagine if it's if it's like a song. Right. We could we could really like listen very closely and block everything out and just be like, OK, I'm going to hear every note. I'm really going to get absorbed in everything I'm thinking. Right. Yeah. Or we could have the sound. We can have the music playing. We can have the thoughts and learn how to dance. That's right. right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, do something else, too. Mm -hmm. right? So I think we need to recognize that in order to do things like that, it's not a it's not a yes, but. It's mm -hmm. not like waiting for the thoughts to stop. It's being able to practice either a quick back and forth mm -hmm. or, or being able to do things simultaneously with the mm -hmm. yes and. 
What I find fascinating is that I think when we are practicing mindfulness or awareness, we're also cultivating and nourishing what we pay attention to. It's like we're intentionally choosing what to pay attention to. I know that in my life, that was hard at the beginning. I didn't have 20 years to practicing meditation. Um, yeah. Is there any other skill or micro skill you will encourage people to practice to cultivate this switching attention and intentionally choosing what to pay attention to? Yeah, one, one of the things that I'll, I'll uh, explore with people is, is broadening their sense of awareness, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, for example, in this... Um, in this exercise of extending warm wishes or blessings to another person, right? We're still in the realm of the mind, right? right. I'm thinking, thinking, thinking. Oh, mm-hmm. but now I'm going to think positive thoughts towards this other person, right? Mm-hmm. But still in this, in this, you know, cerebral domain. That's right. And yet we have so many other senses, right? That's we have right. a whole body that mm-hmm. we can attend to, mm-hmm. right? And so what I find to be helpful is having us expand our awareness so that we can note yes, this is what I'm thinking, or yes, this is the song that's playing in my head, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's from my worry playlist. Maybe mm-hmm. it's from my not good enough playlist, whatever it is, right? It's mm-hmm. there. And uh, what do I feel in the body? Mm-hmm. Right? And what do I see? What do I notice around me? Right? What do I hear? Right? There's in the city, especially like there's so many sensory stimuli. That's right. Right. And and so we can very deliberately and purposefully expand our awareness so that we not only notice what's coming to mind, but we also notice these other things, too. I absolutely love that. I think many times we pay attention a lot to our thoughts and we get consumed mm-hmm. by them. But there is yes. it's the sense of proprioception, right? Noticing, OK, what's going on with my body? If I can go back a little bit to one of the things you say, let's say that talking about this exercise of wishing warm wishes to a person walking by us or next to us as a mindfulness practice that we can do anytime, no matter where we are or the time of the day or who we are with. I know that sometimes in the past, I have heard a lot of skepticism around that. What is the research showing that this is going to be effective and helpful? There is a lot of studies looking at the impact of mindfulness and self-compassion. If you will have to respond to those skeptical comments about what good does it come in my life from wishing someone something good, what would you say? Well, I'd, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, the first thing I'd, I'd say is that um, the, all the research is helpful right? And kind of looking at um, what techniques or practices might, might provide benefits to people, right? Mm-hmm. And the research is looking at groups of people. And ultimately, when, when we're considering a practice, we're, we're at a level of what I, would, what I call N equals one, mm-hmm. where in research studies, N is the sample size, right? How many people were involved in the study? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's 12, maybe it's 1,200. And yet, when we take some practice for us, n equals one. It is just us. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's an opportunity for us then to to just try it. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not going to work. 
Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not. We don't know. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> don't know. Mm -hmm. Don't know. But that that could be one way in which the mind resists change. Mm -hmm. like, what's the research, and how do I know this is going to work? Like, right. You don't know. So then definitely don't do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Right? <laughs> like, don't know. Try it for a little while and see. Mm -hmm. right? Maybe it changes how you feel. Maybe it doesn't. It's okay. It's okay. I love that the response is not counter-arguing or jumping into solving the research. It's actually staying out of content and going back to the person's experience. Let's see how it goes. We do not know, and we don't have any attachment to how it's supposed to be. That's a beautiful frame. Thanks. And, you know, if I could be so bold, Patricia, it works in the same way, too. Mm -hmm. right? So maybe, you know, well-established research that mindfulness meditation is helpful for folks, right? And, you know, I found people that really struggle with that that you know, when they sit down to meditate, they get more anxious, like their stress level goes up. That's right. right? So what do we do? Say, no, no, don't trust your experience. Mm -hmm. Research says this, your experience is wrong. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not, absolutely. I think you have been pointing to the uniqueness of the work that we do. We can have a lot of research and a lot of models and a lot of intervention and skills to teach our clients. And at the end of the day, it all boils down to that particular person in that particular context, in that particular given moment. Yes. So I think 100%. that that's something we have to remember. We know that, for example, people with complex trauma or histories of trauma, they do struggle going into mindfulness or meditation because they need more yes. self-regulation skills prior to do something like that. So I think I love that addition. Kudos to you. I love it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let me ask a little bit more. Um, one of the things that I have learned, and I don't have the truth about this, is that in order to practice mindfulness, whether you do that in a meditation retreat, or you do it in this conversation we're having, or when I'm having a story that I'm not good enough, that requires that I am aware of my pain and what's hurting sometimes. And, and in those moments, perhaps that's the tenderness you were referring to, that something softens up when we can make room for that without pushing it away, without hiding. So I think that in my humble experience, I can see how mindfulness fosters that gentleness with our own struggle. And like you say, I think sometimes we need more exercises or ways of building that muscle. It depends yes. on where we are in our life. Let me switch gears a little bit. Um, one of the things that I'm trying to do with a podcast is to capture and normalize how every single human being, all of us, we have some form of fear-based reactions, anxiety-based reaction, stress-based reaction. When we talk about anxiety and fear, they are terms that usually have very bad branding, right? Like no one talks about <laughs> <laughs> They have very bad branding. Mm -hmm. um, people will talk about when a person is angry or depressed or sad, but fear, anxiety, not too much. We have been socialized with hundreds of messages like powering through, don't be weak, and 
even though in information era, there is still hundreds of people suffering with fear and anxiety. Um, yes. So I try to capture that. And I also like to normalize and talk about how it is human to play it safe. It is human to engage in a safety-seeking response. The friend that I hold is that it's also important to take a look to how you are playing it safe, when you do it, and why you do it. And in my work, what I share with you, and I'm sure you have seen this, is like all these safety-seeking behaviors that we all engage in in our life. We sometimes avoid things. We shoot for the perfect outcome. We dwell on the past. We may anticipate gloom and doom outcomes. We criticize ourselves. So if it's okay, can I ask you, maybe in a general level, how do you see safety-seeking behaviors? Yeah, yeah. Patricia, I, I appreciate you normalizing both our experiences of anxiety and fear, as well as our, our tendency to avoid that, mm-hmm. right? And, and do whatever we need to do in order to seek safety, right? The, the reality, of course, is that oftentimes the, what, what we're seeking is um, kind of a, a feeling mm-hmm. of comfort or security, Right, and so we're fleeing, fleeing from that as opposed to like some some actual like threat in the immediate environment. That's right. Right. Um, no, it, it reminds me of uh, of a uh, sort of silly joke. I love jokes, so go for it. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, imagine that you're surrounded by six man-eating tigers, person-eating mm-hmm. tigers. What do you do? I run as fast as possible. <laughs> okay, so that's an option. You could run, right? The, the punchline to the joke is stop imagining. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> right? Right. So, so forgive me, that's, that's not my joke. I'm, I'm repeating oh. it and I, I can't recall where I got it. But, I love um, it. I love it. It's I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, so, so in terms of safety seeking behaviors, right? There's many ways that we do that, um, mm-hmm. and I thought I might share with you one that might be a little provocative. Okay. Right. So juicy things. Go for it. So, so keeping in mind that that what we're looking at typically as act therapists is what's the function of That's this. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right, whether it's a behavior or a thought pattern or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. right? and and sometimes uh, what I can see as a safety seeking behavior is looking for the why. Ah, uh, right? looking for the why. Right? Why am I like this? Why? 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 Mm-hmm. Why? Right? Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes that's that's really important and you know we need that information in order to to figure out what to do Mm -hmm. and there are also times when when looking for the why is a safety behavior that's right you know the example that comes to my mind i'm sure you have heard the same thing often but Hmm. if a person is having a panic attack and develop anxiety about having the next panic attack what happens if I experience the same thing when I'm driving, when I'm taking the elevator? 
And no matter how many times they have read what a panic attack is and how many times they have asked their psychologist, their coach about that, they can still go into this place, why I'm having these sensations. At times can be informative to understand, right? There is one level of knowledge. But then if that becomes how I'm trying to manage my fear of having another panic attack in the future and my mind gets stuck on it for hours, that's what is very tricky. Exactly. Exactly. So, so it's, it's not, it's not that looking for an explanation itself is always problematic. It's, you know, in this context, what's its function. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, sometimes I, I think of it and I'll use this metaphor when I meet with folks, which is um, imagine that you fall down the stairs, right. You're at the bottom of the stairs, you've fallen. Um, Now you can, you can lie there. Mm-hmm. And sort of look up at the stairs and try to figure out what stair you fell on and the angle that you came down at and sort of see if there's anything slippery or you could just kind of analyze all of that, analyze the stairs and, you know, maybe you check out your socks, like all of that. But meanwhile, mm-hmm. you're still just lying on the floor. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Right. And so you know, what, what I encourage folks to do is, is actually like, get up mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? and that you can actually start to walk again, maybe even walk up the stairs mm-hmm. and still look for an explanation. Sure. Right? Why not? They're, they're yeah. not mutually exclusive, mm-hmm. right? that we can be acting in ways that move us towards our goals, acting in ways that are consistent with our values mm-hmm. and also looking for the why too. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not as though we have to figure out everything in order to do what's important in life, right? right? Or, or um, you know, recognizing, for example, that, that part of this might be moving forward with some anxiety mm-hmm. right? or with not knowing. I don't know what Why? happened. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. You don't know. That's right. We don't know. I don't know if I'm going to fall down the stairs again or not or when it's going to happen. Nope. That's right. Don't know, right? <laughs> so, so we can walk cautiously, right? But we're still walking. That's right. right. Yeah. I think you're pinpointing to something that I talk to my clients about is that there is a life to live and we own it to ourselves to keep living life. And life is happening outside of us, not in our head. But I think it's tricky when we start playing it safe by trying to figure out exactly why this happened to me. If we can unpack this a little bit, because I have been thinking a lot about this lately. Um, We know that behind all types of anxiety struggles, there is this fear of uncertainty, no knowing, ambiguity. I have to practice 10 times last week to say that word ambiguity for that. (laughs) (laughs) I I played safe last week practicing that word. (laughs) I I love you just leading with it today. That's great. The whole week has been all about ambiguity for me. (laughs) Um, But what I found is that we try to live life with no knowing. But what I find is that sometimes some of my clients have, um, they have rules about their thinking. Like in the case of obsessive compulsive disorder, for example, there is a lot of rules about because I think so, it makes me so. 
if I don't do anything about this compulsion, it's the same as causing it. If I put OCD aside, and again, this is not fully elaborated or well articulated, but I think that many times what I found is that there is this attachment to rules, rules about how we're supposed to think about things. And I think that affects a lot of the work that we try to do when dealing with these safety-seeking behaviors. Academically, people talk about these metacognitions, right? That's the term. That's what we're talking about. In ACT, I talk about ruling thoughts that are driving unworkable behaviors. But they are ruling thoughts because they're very, very sticky. They are high degrees of fusion, high degrees of believability. Have you encountered that? How do you see it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, to to talk uh, more generally about anxiety, you know, as you're pointing out, you know, we, it often thrives when there is uncertainty, it thrives where we don't have control, Mm -hmm. it thrives where things are unpredictable. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's life. That's right. That is life. Right. And, and we need to, to ultimately find ways to allow for not knowing, mm-hmm. right? And, and oftentimes with folks, right, I encourage them really to get in touch with what it feels like in an embodied way, mm-hmm. not to know. You don't know, right? Maybe that person doesn't like you. You don't know, right? Maybe, you know, in an OCD context, maybe you... You touch that thing and now you have a, a serious disease. Mm-hmm. You don't know. Right. Maybe something bad is going to happen. You don't know. That's right. Right. And that feels scary. Mm-hmm. Totally feels scary. Mm-hmm. Right. Because we want the certainty. We don't want the ambiguity. Right. And we can't get around that. We That's can't. right. Right. So, so necessarily we need to find a way at the very least to tolerate that mm-hmm. right and um you know there's this phrase uh that um, some folks are using in the inhibitory learning model for dealing mm-hmm. with ocd of um uh i think this is jonathan abramowitz phrase of desirable difficulties that's right, right. Mm-hmm. so so it's like where where can you lean into the not knowing the mm-hmm. uncertainty, right? I don't know, where can you take that risk, right? And not, not in a like dangerous, like physically dangerous way, but more, you know, in terms of things that, that might be psychologically challenging for us mm-hmm. and yet consistent with, with our own values. Which is key. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes I like to do this uncertainty workouts with my clients. In addition mm-hmm. to exposures, because yeah. like you, I think that living with unknown is part of being alive. I don't know what's going to show up tonight in the news. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm nope. going to like the dish of a restaurant I want to go. Mm-hmm. I don't know yes. what's going to happen the next hour. So I think it's embedded in our life. Yes. We schedule these uncertainty workouts. About mm-hmm. stuff is not necessarily related, you know, that, that it's aversive, but it's really to know yeah. the experience. Watching a movie of an actor that you never watch, to a new yeah. city, trying a new dish, cooking your favorite recipe, just right. to practice a little bit. 
And this varies from person to person. Sometimes the thinking gets tricky. I need to know because I need to prevent negative outcomes. And I think the other types of thoughts over here a lot is I will regret if I don't make the right decision, if I don't think carefully about this, Mm. then I will regret later on. How will you handle those responses? Yeah, I mean, I I can think of a few ways that I've helped folks work through that. Um, One is is having them reflect on their experience of problem solving. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're doing all this thinking, trying to create certainty, trying to make things predictable, trying to um, anticipate what's going to happen and be prepared for it. Like, how has that worked for you? Mm -hmm. And and in many cases, it can work short term. Right. And what we see is what happens long term is it just promotes more of that problem solving mindset. Mm -hmm. Right. And there are certain situations that we can't really problem solve in that way. Mm-hmm. Is this the right partner for me? That's right. Is this the right job for me? Is this, um, I don't know, um, take your pick, right? Big, big questions. Mm-hmm. Right? They don't really lend themselves to that kind of analysis, mm-hmm. right? If I'm trying to pick out the best tire for my car, sure right? I can do that. <laughs> but at another level, right? Right. <laughs> that, that kind of problem solving isn't that effective for us. That's right. Uh, it will keep and, us stuck. Yeah, yeah. And, and starting to recognize that, you know, perhaps even um, that that's a safety seeking behavior, mm-hmm. right? I'm not going to do something until I figure it out. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. Okay, like see what's happening, right? You're delaying action perhaps, right? And you know, maybe there are consequences or costs associated with that. Another thing that, that I'll do with folks, um, and this comes from uh, Bill Sanderson's work on GAD, mm-hmm. is, is helping people recognize their own capacity for coping with, with uh, you know, unexpected situations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, wait, you didn't, you didn't plan for that to happen. You didn't know that was going to happen. And you dealt with it pretty well. How the heck did you do that? That's right. How did you do that? You didn't, you didn't plan for that. And you dealt with that pretty well. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? You know, how do you, how do you make sense of that? Mm-hmm. Was it just luck? Was it just luck? Ah, just lucky. Seems like you're lucky a lot. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do? Yeah. <laughs> Right. But but helping people develop some some confidence, some faith, some trust in their own capacity. That's right. To deal with with situations, even when they're unexpected, even when they're really stressful. So if I can recap a little bit, your response one for people listening yep. to us, one way to handle this will be by looking at the workability, how it works for you if you yes. keep trying to figure out every single thing, right? Do you do more with your life or do you do less? Mm-hmm. Or do you live your life or you're living your life in your head, right? That would be maybe one way. And the other one is looking that when bad things happen to you or unexpected things happen to you, how did you handle them? 
and see yeah, what yeah. you learn about your own skills to handle these unknown situations, these ambiguous situations. Just to practice yes. a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. Love the leaning in. <laughs> we love the leaning in. We have to. We have to. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't have to. I choose to. I choose to. And I just have to throw them. Jonathan, one last question or two more questions, if it's okay. Um, of course. Talking about anxiety and safety-seeking behaviors. For people listening to us, if they don't know how to distinguish when their safety-seeking behavior or their playing it safe move is working in their favor or against them, what would you encourage them to pay attention to to make that distinction? Because mm. we're saying that these safety-seeking behaviors are natural things that we all do. We all search for information. We all try to understand yes. why things happen to us. But we're saying that sometimes if you overdo them, watch out because then you can get stuck. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And that that's something that, that I'll explore with folks too, is that is this... Um, I don't know, is this um, pretty benign problem solving? Or is this something that's more as, as we're talking about a safety seeking behavior? Mm-hmm. Right? And so, so what I find um, around that, it's helpful to look at other associated um, phenomena around that behavior. So for example, you know, if something is a safety-seeking behavior, we might notice a certain repetitive around repetitiveness around it. We sure. might notice, you know, that reassurance-seeking is also part of it. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, we might notice uh, particular sensations in the body, like you know, oftentimes folks will feel a contraction, a constriction, right? Or mm-hmm. you know, their shoulders start migrating up towards their ears, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's certain um, other other qualities of these experiences that that can help us distinguish whether something is um, more benign or more problematic. Mm-hmm. And so helping people explore that. People have to look at the internal experience in terms of looking at their body. Do you mind elaborating a little bit more on that so people can get a better sense? Sure. So um, you know, focusing in on the body. Mm-hmm. Right. You might um, start noticing if something is it seems to be you might notice just kind of what you're feeling as you're yeah. engaged in this behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and at a certain point, you might decide, oh, this was just kind of a benign, like check in problem solving, or this is something actually that was more pro- problematic and um, safety seeking. Right. Mm-hmm. And so so it's a matter essentially of accumulating data. And you look at them and say, oh, right? Like, it seems that when I have this sort of contraction in my chest and the swirling in my stomach, and I notice the repetitiveness in my own mind around this problem, that's usually points to a safety-seeking behavior, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? For example, Mm -hmm. Um, so really using not just... um, the mind to look at the mind, but also using the mind to take in other information from the body, right? Or from how we're feeling emotionally, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we might also notice these behaviors emerging differently in different contexts, right? So also encourage folks to not just look in at the body, but also look circumstantially, also look relationally, like, oh, I notice this thing happens a lot with my partner. 
or with mm -hmm. my parents, right? Or I notice that this happens a lot to me at work, but nowhere else, mm -hmm. right? And so, so as we accumulate these data, that gives us an opportunity going forward to better decide or distinguish whether something's more safety seeking or whether it's more benign. Mm -hmm. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? It does. And thank you so much. Yeah. Those are beautiful tips for people to pay attention to. It's a multi-layered process that we have to look mm -hmm. at. I have one more question because we're running out of time. It's non-related to anxiety or psychology. It's a personal question. Mm -hmm. If you were to have a cup of tea or coffee or a beer or a scotch with any person you want today, who would that be and why? Hmm, that's a good question. I think, I think for me, I, you know, one of the things that, that informs um, how I operate in the world and, and oftentimes how I work with folks is it's, it's informed uh, philosophically and mm -hmm. spiritually, mm -hmm. right? And, and for many, many years, I've been uh, practicing uh, within sort of a modern insight Buddhist tradition. So I could see myself, um, mm -hmm. you know, either sitting down you know, with the historical Buddha or mm -hmm. maybe even Siddhartha before he became the Buddha. That could mm -hmm. be interesting. Um, more recently, I've been been studying Taoism and, and doing Taoist meditation, so I could also see you know, Lao Tzu as being somebody who might have some interesting things to share. You know, those sounds like very juicy conversations. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't go right to Taylor Swift or anything, so I, <laughs> sorry if folks are disappointed. No, no, no. I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite parts of the conversations I have in the podcast mm. because yeah. it's really neat to see where people's curiosities land and what's mm -hmm. inspiring them. So thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Jonathan, I want to say thank you so much again for the beautiful book you wrote, Urban Mindfulness. I will put links to the book on the notes of the episode. And thank you for really showing how we can practice mindfulness and awareness in our day-to-day lives. It's a huge contribution. So thank you for that. And thank you for You're making welcome. the time to share all your insights with me today. Many thanks. <laughs> uh, Patricia, thanks so much for, for having me. It's been a delight. To, to talk with you and I've really appreciated how and our conversation like we, we touched on what I thought were some pretty interesting topics I right and I, I'm, I'm hopeful that these are things that that folks will, will find helpful I think there were very interesting topics and thank you so much again thanks for listening if you like this episode I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.zone. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!